welcome to Pieces of History. I'm Colin McGrath. This week, I'm joined again by Dr. Richard McGilligot to continue our talk on the Gaelic Athletic Association. We'll be looking at the organisation after the turn of the 20th century, the state of the club and county game, and the GAA and the Irish Revolutionary Period. Hi Richard, how's, how's things? No, not too bad, Colin, how are you? Good, good. Um, not too bad. Um, thanks very much for coming back on again. Um, I really appreciate it. The, I really enjoyed the first episode there, so I'm delighted you've come back on again. So just to recap from where we left off, um, so we finished off the, the formation of the GAA and um, Michael Cusick, um, 1880s, 1890s, and then we, we got into the, the turn of the century. Well, so you discussed the, the so the transformation of, of media coverage with, within this, the sport and then the introduction of photography, the decision to create the, the four provincial councils as well. Mm-hmm. And, and then f- finally, we kind of just finished on the, the real com- company sponsoring cups. So obviously the, the Railway Cup. And then also just finally, the um, the rise of Kerry and in, in Gaelic football and Kilkenny and Hurling. So just coming on from that then, um, where was the um, club game in and around the turn of the century, say 1905, 1910? Yeah, and again, well, you see, at this at this point, so I suppose what I was trying to get at last week is, in that decade and a half before the First World War, the GA finally comes of age and kind of finally puts down the roots to make it, you know, the predominant sports and sporting organisation in Ireland. Now the club game uh, is beginning to thrive, and um, by 1910, the GA is back up to almost 800 clubs, and that will continue to grow and grow and grow into the 1920s and 30s and so on. Um, and I suppose there is a slight change in what happens in the GA because previously, up until the turn of the 20th century, uh, the idea was the clubs that won the county championships would represent the county in an All-Ireland series. But very quickly from the earliest days of the GA, what begins to happen is it's actually the best 15 players in the county, not necessarily the ones on that specific club that won the county championship, are actually drafted in. So really, by the turn of the 20th century, you have genuine county teams uh, representing their counties. Uh, and that becomes very much... So this genuinely becomes, you know, a county team. And with the advent of photography, you know, you have these teams being photographed under distinctive jerseys. The GA brings out rules to make sure every county, you know... Um, basically um, clarifies what uh, and picks and clarifies what its county colours are and so on. So that's basically the club game becomes very much a feeder into the county system and so on. And of course, as the GA reorganises itself and expands and becomes better organised across the provinces, of course, more and more clubs, you know, begin to form and you get a very vibrant, you know, uh, club championships in every county and that continues on to this very day. So really, when we get to you know, 1913, 1914, just at the cusp of the First World War, the GA, as I said, has come of age. But I suppose what's the interesting thing, which is we're going to talk about, is the GA in that era of the Irish Revolutionary Period. Um, and that's something that has probably the most debated and discussed and analysed part of the GA's history. And I guess a lot of it boils down to an argument of how much the GA was actively involved the independence movement, the independence struggle, the revolutionary period, or how much was it just a passive element? You know, was it active or passive and so on? And that, that, that's been the cusp of a lot of, I suppose, historical debate surrounding the GA. And so if, if, if we kind of talk, talk about that then, um, in your paper a number of years ago, um, An Abundance of First Class Recruits, 
Um, you spoke mm-hmm. about the, G- the GAA and Irish Volunteers from 1913 onwards then. So is that really the the start, obviously, of the, of the march towards 1916? This is a very, I suppose, traditionally, in the decades after Irish independence, you had a whole host of writers and historians of the GAA basically trying to claim that the GAA was front and centre in the independence struggle, that the GAA um, was a very active, prominent part in the revolution the Irish Revolution that brought about Irish independence from the British Empire. Um, now, obviously, as once academic historians really began to look at sports history from the late 1980s on, uh, a much more nuanced and complex picture has emerged. And the GA had a complex relationship with the volunteers, but it begins, actually, if you go back a few years before that, you begin to see already from really the very beginning of the 19th, 20th century, um, the GEA starting to creep uh, politics, uh, really starting to creep back into the GEA. Do you remember when we were talking last week and we talked about how in the 1890s the GEA almost collapsed due to political intrigue and there was this much push to make the GEA an apolitical organisation to avoid that? Well, basically they throw that out the window uh, come the 1900s. And that is influenced by, as I talked about last week, that whole generation of cultural nationalists who come back into the GA. And many of them are also very active politically. Many of them would be members of the likes of the Irish Republican Brotherhood or would be influenced by the Otto Griffiths emerging Sinn Féin movement. So a lot of them would have radical political views, you know, Republican views and so on and so forth. And they see the GA, you know, as a great source of potential recruits, um, um, you know, for their organizations and so on. Um, and, and you begin to see this very quickly. For example, from 1903 onwards, uh, the infamous foreign games bans are introduced, and that basically prohibits any GA member from playing what they call foreign games. And, of course, foreign games means the four main British sports of hockey, cricket, rugby, and soccer. But then in another politi- very political step, the GA introduces its ban on both police and British military personnel uh, being allowed members of the GA. And that comes into effect from around 1903 onwards up until 1905, stricter and stricter rules. And basically, this is an attempt by the GA's leadership, uh, this imposition of a police and military ban. This is seen by them as their attempt to drive, to assist, I suppose, in that attempt by Irish nationalists to eventually drive British rule and its infrastructure out of Ireland. Because, I mean, these are the on-the-ground representations of British colonial rule. It is a British police. It is. It's Irish men, but it's a British police force, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And even if you look at the terminology when these rules are passed at the GA's annual Congress, I mean, it's presented as this argument, and I quote here, to get rid of the vile system of British government whose sole objective is to maintain subjugation of our native land by fair means or foul. So you've got this coming into the GA's, uh, you know, coming into the GA's rhetoric. Uh, the GA also becomes very involved in anti-recruitment, British military anti-recruitment campaigns, which emerge this time uh, amongst various Irish nationalist groups. I mean, there's an article in the GA's annual athletic, or Gaelic Athletic Annual, which is a publication they bring out. There's an article in the 1909 edition, and it basically says, stop recruiting for England. Stop it by practice and by ostracism. And not alone do you release one arm for era, but you paralyze one of England's too. And then if you go forward two years later, a future president of the GA, a man called Dan McCarthy, he basically 
tells an audience of GA members that he wants them to train to be physically strong so that when the time comes, the hurlers will cast away the on for the steel that will drive the Saxon from our land. So do you see there is this politicization happening and I, I suppose a, a, a radical politicization being spoke, spoken about uh, amongst the GA. Now, of course, the big debate is you have prominent GA figures within the leadership of the GA talking about all this. Now, how much are they actually swaying the political attitudes of a very broad, diverse, ordinary rank and file of GA members who, after all, this is a sports organization. This is not predominantly a political organization. Mm-hmm. And I guess the the answer to that is no more than certain individuals want to be swayed by these arguments. I'm, I mean, there is, there's been a lot of work, I suppose, on the social history column of the Irish revolutionary struggle in the last few decades and the everyday experience. And you do see from that is just like membership of the Gaelic, likes the Gaelic League, was a kind of pathway to revolutionary violent activity. So membership of the GA for some people was also that pathway, you know, to revolutionary activity, to political activism and so on. Mm-hmm. By being part of the GA, they were in contact with people who influenced their ideas and views and so on. But again, you can't overemphasize that because, again, we're talking about a sporting organization, a very broad-based sporting organization. And for most people, even the most committed political revolutionaries or people, avowed nationalists, you know, they're still sports people. And what attracted them to the GA is, first and foremost, their love of sport. They might be very politically passionate and very nationalistic, but sport does win out as well. You know, and sport, a lot of the time, is an equal passion of theirs or maybe a predominant passion of theirs rather than political convictions. So it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a complex system. I mean, famously, uh, Patrick Pierce writing in advance of the 1916 rising, he wrote that, look, 1916, when it happens, if it happens, it would be impossible, inconceivable, I think he said, without the Gaelic League. Now, he never made that claim about the GA, even though he himself was active in the GA in terms of promoting Gaelic games uh, in, 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 in schools and the education system in Dublin. So again, it's, it's a complex web. And you see that when the First World War breaks out as well. So the GA kind of presents itself as being against uh, British military recruitment and so on. But we know now, and we've got some some brilliant work done by a wonderful historian of the GA like um, Donald McAnallen, who's, who's based up in um, um, Belfast. Uh, Donald's done a brilliant project on the impact of the GA uh, the impact of the First World War on the GA. And he's found that hundreds and probably thousands of GA members were recruited uh, into the British Army, voluntarily recruited into the British Army. You've got clubs like up in Belfast, there's the St. Peter's Club uh, that was actually forced to disband in 1915 because 20 of its senior players were off fighting on the Western Front. Um, you have people like Captain Lawrence Roach. Now, he was a former Limerick GA chairman he becomes captain of the month in the Munster Volunteers, and he basically goes. He's he's involved in a massive recruitment drive around Munster in 1915, and he's talking to crowds, and you know he's coating his language in the sporting motif that was so prevalent during the First World War. And he talks and he says he wants GA men to become involved so that they're prominent when they make, as he calls it, the last attack on the Germans' goals and so on. So you have the influence of the First World War significantly impacting on the GA as well. So as I said, it's very nuanced and complicated. And I guess it shows that 
you can't stereotype the GA as being one shade or hue of nationalism. You know, it's not one shade of green. This is this is a very diverse membership. Some people are attracted to radicalism. Some people are attracted to British enlistment in the First World War. Most people just want to play football and hurling. You know what I mean? Because um, even I was looking at um, previous previous winners as well. And during the, the interwar periods, anyway, say between 1914, 1918, 1919, the games still went on. The, you know, the All-Ireland still went on because in 1914, uh, Kerry beat Wexford in the final. Mm-hmm. And then... Wexford went on to win it between 1915 and 1919. So it's not like they stopped anyway. No, I mean, yeah, they were disrupted to an extent, but they still managed to keep going. Now, once you get to the War of Independence, there is a lot of stoppages and they basically have a backlog of matches. So you have two All-Irelands in the space of, you know, nine or 10 months and so on. But yeah, that was a, um, that Wexford team uh, becomes the first really, really great team of the GA. I mean, it's the first team to ever win four in a row. And actually, one of its star forwards, uh, man, a young man named James Rossiter, um, tragically, Wexford lost two All-Irelands to Kerry in 1913 and 1914. Only a matter of weeks uh, before they play that next All-Ireland final against Kerry in 1915 and go on to win their first All-Ireland, they get news that Rossiter, who in the meantime has enlisted with the British Army, has actually died in battle from uh, injuries. And that, that news only filters through in the week or two before the all, that All-Ireland triumph. So again, that's a an, that's an representation of the impact of the First World War on the GA. Um, and again, it just shows, like I said, and that's the thing about the GA, and going back to my original point at the very start of this last week, sport is such a window into society. And the GA, I think, is a great window into our society. And, and, and the GA reflects at any time in Irish history, since its formation, obviously, what's really going on in our society. And you see that with the volunteers. You know, it's the home rule crisis and that, um, and that, you know, manifests itself in the rise of these two paramilitary groups in Ireland. You know, the Ulster volunteers led by Edward Carson, unionists who want, who are basically arming to try and force the British government not to include Ulster or the predominantly unionist areas of Ulster into a united Home Rule Irish state. And in reaction to that, Irish nationalists arming to make sure that Home Rule for all of Ireland is comes in uh, and is implemented by the British government. And again, the, GAs, the, the involvement of GA members in that shows how you know the GA reflects what's going on in broader Irish society because the volunteers become you know a phenomenon in Ireland you know hundreds they have over two or three hundred thousand members you know by 1915 by before or by the by the time you get to the summer of 1914 I should say and in many areas uh, in local areas the GA is actually instrumental its organizational framework and networks are actually instrumental in helping to spread and appeal of the volunteer movement i mean if you look at kerry um the chairperson of the ga there austin stack he becomes the head of the volunteers in kerry but of course he's also the leading figure of in the irb in kerry it's the same in cork if you go to cork the head of the cork ga a man called jj walsh also a radical nationalist and also head of the vol- a very senior figure in the volunteers in Cork. So you get that in specific counties. Now at a, at a national level and leadership level, it's a little more complex. The GA kind of endorses the volunteers to an extent, but not so much so. The GA's president, for example, uh, James Nolan, in early 1914, shortly after the volunteers are 
are uh, formed. He addresses a GA meeting and basically recommends that GA followers should join the volunteers and, as he says, learn to shoot straight. But at the same time, the GA is careful not to have too close a relationship with the volunteers, seeing as this is a very political organization, what the volunteers represent. So they actually don't allow the volunteers, when they request, could they use Crow Park as uh, a drilling center, you know, somewhere where they could drill en masse and so on. So it's a kind of nuanced relationship. They're supportive of the volunteers, but they don't want to appear to be, you know, in bed with them, if you understand what I mean. Mm-hmm. And then further on in 1914, then there was the um, split as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the split the split happens, obviously, and, and what you have is, and it's over the direction of the uh, volunteer movement. It's, it's because the leader of the Irish Home Rule Party, uh, John Redmond, basically asked the volunteers to help enlist in the British war effort. Redmond wants Ireland, basically, to repay Britain for their future prospect of introducing Home Rule. Home Rule is going to be the British promise that Home Rule will come into force in Ireland the minute the war is over. And Redmond wants, I suppose, Irish involvement in the war effort to see to being completely supporting the British war effort as a basically a thank you to the British for bringing Home Rule, but also, of course, because he's hoping to have his own private army, effectively, once the war is over, to again, to make sure that there'll be no betrayal of Home Rule Ireland being introduced by the British government. But of course, that famously splits the volunteers, uh, a a more radical faction who will become basically taken over by the IRB, split away, and and they're going to be the rank-and-file foot soldiers of the 1916 Rising. And again, the GAA at a national level, you know, doesn't really give an opinion about the uh, the volunteer split, but certainly at a county level, particularly, again, referencing places like Kerry or Wexford or Cork, you see that very much that radical IRB-led faction of the volunteers is by being backed by prominent figures in the GA. Mm-hmm. And again, in the lead up to the 1916 Rising, you have prominent volunteers who know it's about to take part, who knows about what's about what is about to take place, who know what the likes of Patrick Pierce and Thomas Clark and James Conley are planning, and they're using their GA connections at a local level to organize it. So in Kerry, Austin Stack, we talked about that 1915 All Ireland final. It was played late in the year in 1915. He basically organizes a squadron a squad of volunteers to go up pretending to be Kerry supporters. And the next day the real mission the day after the final is to go collect arms, weapons that were landed at the Holt gun running and bring them back to Kerry and the returning Kerry supporters train so that they can help arm the volunteers. Because obviously, as you might know from your 1916 history, the German arms shipment that, this, that the, the leadership of, of the rebellion is hoping will be crucial, that is going to be landed in Kerry. And that's what Austin Stack wants to make sure that the local volunteers are properly armed to make sure that they can secure this German arms landing and so on. So you get all these uh, links and so on. But again, that is at an individual level. At an official level, you know, the association has no prior knowledge and is no active participant. And again, that's kind of highlighted when the day the original Easter Rising is meant to take place, the actual Easter Sunday, the GA is actually holding its annual Congress. Now, there's no way they would have held their annual Congress if they had any inkling that Dublin was about to go up in a rebellion at that stage. Mm -hmm. So again, it's individuals um, trying to convince other individuals and using their GA networks, you know, to put forward and expand 
their their political beliefs and the people attracting to these organizations, but the GA then as a whole, you know, not being an active participant in that. So that's the kind of nuance that's going on. Mm-hmm. And even like you're saying as well, on, on a personal level, obviously at the the hierarchy of the organization, yes, they may have obviously had, a, had an inkling what was going to happen, but on, on an individual level as well, like you wrote in your article as well, within the, the rebellion itself, there was 302 players from 53 clubs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, were, were among the rebels anyway, and five of the 15 men executed. Again, it shows it. And, and, and like some historians will look at that, they're, they're, that's, there's been 302 GA members actively identified as being within the amount of volunteers who actually fought in Dublin itself in 1916. Now, you know, it's still debated anywhere between 1500 and 1800. That was the total size of the rebel force out in the streets in 1916. But 302, that still represents anywhere between a fifth and a quarter of the total rebel force. Now, some historians, as I say, will look at that and say, well, that's only a minority. I would have an argument, well, that's a pretty significant minority, and it's far more than any other sporting organization in Ireland um, was represented. And I think it does show, and it underlines that for some, there was more to the GA in this period than the playing field and in, and in just sport. There was people within the GA, significant minority, and a minority obviously, but a significant one, that saw the GA in more than just sporting terms. And if you look at some individual clubs, I mean, there were 69 members of the St. Lawrence O'Toole Club in Dublin, active in the fighting. The Croaks GA Club had 40 members, 32 of them fought in the 1916 Rising. So these men were extremists, but there's something there that they were attracted to the GA because of this, you know, and that's something that you can't, uh, you know, whitewash or, or downplay either if you really want a nuanced understanding of the GA at this time. Just Richard, in your own opinion, because um, uh, Michael Cusick died in 1906, how do you think he would have felt if he was still alive in around that time? Do you reckon he would have been in favour of the rebellion or, or what would his stance, well, do you think? This is another, uh, there's a, 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 a lot of historical debate about Michael Cusick. Like Michael Cusick claimed he was a member of the IRB. Now, there's no evidence to suggest he was or he wasn't, but a lot of people would argue he was probably only saying that to curry favour. Uh, with certain elements at the time. Um, I don't know. You don't know. I mean, there's nothing yeah. to suggest he was anyway a radical. He was definitely a proud Irishman, very much a proud nationalist, a cultural nationalist. I would think more, to, probably the same as anyone in Ireland. Uh, initially, as we see, maybe shocked and appalled by 1916 and what happened, but the British response to that begins to generate a Anglophobia that becomes directed at an organization like Sinn Féin that can reap that reward and turn, you know, what was a campaign by essentially a group of terrorists, let's be honest, who had no political mandate when they when they rose up in 1916. It turns that into a mass-based movement for independence that is ultimately successful. I presume um, that Michael Cusick would have probably felt the same as any nationalist, you know, looking at the, the um, aftermath of the British response to the rising. So if, if we just move on a wee bit, Richard, then to mm-hmm. na- nineteen twenty, then and um, Bloody Sunday, S- same again as well. Was there a split within the GAA at this time, pro and against? You know, Michael Collins, Steve Valera. What? How, how was the organisation at this point? Did they yeah. w- did they keep themselves separate or? Again, that's, that's a big chunk of a question, so I'll, I'll try and tease it out a little bit. I, I, th- um, I think I think I think that's actually a podcast series, Richard, more than anything. 
Yeah, it is. You're right. You're right. We could talk. Geez, I'll probably bore your listeners in the end by talking so much. Like I said, the GEI was a, is a great window into, into trying to understand what's going on in Ireland. And if you get to the months after 1916, I suppose what, what you'd see, the shifting stands of Irish public sentiment very quickly began to re- be reflected in the GEI. Um, clubs, all of a sudden, particularly in places like Ulster, start rechristening themselves as the Pierces or the Clarks or the Connollys after the marches of 1916. Um, to give you another just example, particularly when Sinn Féin comes to the fore and emerges at that mass movement, um, you know, in 1914, the Clare Hurlers won the All-Ireland, um, but they, they enter Croke Park that day in a banner proclaiming up Redmond, i.e. up John Redmond, the leader of the Irish Home Rule Movement. In 1917, the Clare footballers get to the All-Ireland final and they enter their matches behind the banner pro- declaring up Eamon de Valera now the leader of the Sinn Féin movement, who was at the, you know, the most prominent veteran of the 1916 Rising. So that's just an illustration of, I suppose, the shift, the radical shift, it must be said, in Irish political sentiment from pre-1916, being content with a limited form of devolution that Home Rule is, into supporting a mass-based movement, which is arguing that a republic However, they're a bit ambiguous about how it's going to be attained, political pressure, actual revolution and violence, but that sentiment and support for an actual Irish independent republic is, you know, growing and the GA reflects that. So we get to the War of Independence and and, the, and basically by the time we get to the start of the War of Independence, the GA really has assumed a position within that broad-based independence movement. You know, it is very in support, its members are very in supportive of Sinn Féin. GA matches are being, you know, held um, to raise funds for members of the Sinn Féin movement and the Republican movement when the Irish volunteers reformed and increasingly began to um, rechristen themselves the Irish Republican Army, the IRA. The GA matches are a principal source of funding for those individuals who are being arrested, sent to imprisoned or on trial and so on, um, or are going on hunger strike and so on. So the GA becomes very involved in that. In other ways, it shows, I suppose, its support for the independence movement and what Sinn Féin is hoping to achieve. Is In 1919, the British government introduces a law that all civil servants have to declare an oath of allegiance to the British king, the monarchy. Now, remember, that includes everyone like teachers and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. the GA actually, it's a contentious decision at the time, but the GA passes a law that says, look, we are prohibiting membership from any civil servant who takes this mandatory oath of allegiance. And that forces an awful lot of people in GA, like the teachers and so on, who in many places were the backbone of it, to step aside and step away. Um, but again, it's a stark illustration of the GA, you know, being a part of this movement, of, of helping in whatever way it can, you know, in, in, in a cultural and sporting context with the independence movement. So we get to 1920. Now, the GA can oper- has managed to operate as normal, relatively speaking, in 1919. Because if you know your history of the Irish independence, war, war of independence, I should say, you know, 1919, it's really only in the start of 1920 that a real conflict, you know, the guerrilla war we know, we know so much about from um, popular, our, our popular imagination and popular imagery really begins to take off. So it doesn't... The activity of the IRA doesn't really, uh, and the British response to that, doesn't really impact on the GA in 1919. But by the summer of 1920, the likes of the Black and Tans and the auxiliary units are arriving in Ireland. And really, 
continuing GAA activity becomes too dangerous at that point because inevitably, as they do with the likes of creameries, as they do with you know you know looting pubs and houses and so on across the land, the fear is that GAA games will just become a target for British reprisals. Um, after IRA attacks, you know they're burning down creameries. They're burning down places like Balbriggan, Cork. You know, famously, Partick Street will be burnt down as a reprisal, and so on. And and, and the GA knows that. Look, this will if if we let GA games continue, you know they will become they're the most obvious one, of the most obvious um, targets for reprisals in a local area. So basically, the GA uh, very quickly from the summer of 1920 basically stops at every county level, at every level from 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 an all Ireland right down to club level, its um its games are suspended and basically to try and wait out what is happening, um and the GA of course keeps its head down, it isn't going to declare for itself, you know obviously they are supportive of the nationalist movement, they are like they reflect Irish uh, mass Irish opinion and mass Irish opinion is with the Sinn Féin movement is with the IRA in their campaign. But of course, they can't publicly come out and say that for fear that they will be attacked. So why is it, I suppose you're, people might be asking, do they decide to have a game on the 21st of November 1920? Mm-hmm. Well, basically, it's an attempt by the GA just to have some sense of normality, you know, just to organize a one-off game, uh, even in the very troubled days of late 1920, just for the GA to be able to survive and function as a sporting organization to show that it's still there and it can still, um, you know, it can still put on these occasions. And they picked Tipperary and Dublin. Uh, Dublin and Tipperary are probably two of the strongest teams in Ireland in this era. Dublin would win a, f- a couple of All-Irelands in and around the 1920-1921 period. Uh, Tipperary won an All-Ireland in 1919. So they are two of the best teams, if not the two best teams in the country. Now, the problem is, the uh, Michael Collins, who's in charge of the IRA's intelligence network in Dublin, um, he decides to get a bl- uh, to try and deal, you know, a mortal blow to British intelligence service, the British intelligence service and its system in Dublin that day. He knows that there's going to be a big game in Croke Park, and he's going to use this as cover to send out a whole, uh, basically. A, a, um, a whole company of hand-picked IRA members from Dublin, and they're going to target who they think are prominent British intelligence areas agents, I should say, across the city. Now, in the end of that, in that morning, about fourteen intelligence officers are killed in the IRA's operations. Um, now, obviously, the authorities are shocked by this. Dublin is immediately put into a lockdown after the killings. And of course, they're looking for where do these gunmen disappear to? Where can we find them? Who can we take our retribution out of? And unfortunately, the GA provide them with the perfect place, a a big meeting, a match with about 15,000 people attending it. Now, General McCready, who's the British military uh, commander in Ireland, he thinks that, look, Croke Park, the game that's been played there, that's a good place to start your search for trying to find these gunmen. Auxiliaries, a, a, a squadron of auxiliaries, black and tans, police and British military are going to descend on Crow Park. The idea is that they're going to surround the stadium, order all the spectators to leave by the nearest exit, and as they're coming out, search them and hopefully be able to catch a few men with guns. And these are the people they can you know, string up on a flagpole and say, you know, uh, put up in court and say, we've, we've got these killers 
um, the, these murderers who, who've committed this atrocity against our men. But, of course, as we know, uh, that operation descends into uh, a shambolic uh, mass shooting, which probably is the greatest atrocity of the entire Irish Revolutionary period. Um, they, the British forces surround Crow Park, um, but for some reason, it's not clear why, but it certainly wasn't provoked. They start opening fire indiscriminately into the crowd. Um, there was, they weren't being shot at. They were under no danger. It just seems that, I suppose, the blood was up with some of them. Uh, they couldn't be controlled, and they just started firing into the crowd as a reprisal you know, for their comrades getting brutally shot and murdered that morning. Now, it only lasted about 90 seconds, two minutes, but once the smoke had cleared, um, 14 people had died. Uh, seven were killed instantly, including a, a poor young child who had actually climbed up on the canal end, the goals in the canal, the wall at the goals of the canal end. He was shot through the brain with a bullet. Um, five more died from bullet wounds, and two people were trampled to death, and obviously the, ma- the massive confusion. They never found a single rifle or gun or anything. Now, there was one or two of the IRA involved in the Bloody Sunday killings of intelligence officers who actually did escape into Crow Park. But again, they had they, 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 the authorities never captured them. They never captured any weapons. And this was an indiscriminate you know, shooting into a crowd of effectively innocent people. You know, of, I'll say effectively war innocent people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a, a tragedy. And very quickly, the British try and falsify what happened. But they lose the propaganda war very quickly. And actually, if, if you're looking at the entire history of the Irish War of Independence, you know, for all we talk about, you know, the, the, the flying columns, the ambushes, and so on, really the British lost it for two reasons. They lost it because of Michael Collins' intelligence network in Dublin that was able to hit, keep hitting the British directly at their heart of their administration. And they lost it because of the propaganda war. The propaganda war was won by Irish nationalists, by Sinn Féin, by the IRA. Uh, Irish, British, and world opinion basically turned against the British until they realized that they couldn't keep this war going anymore. And Crow Park and what happened on Bloody Sunday is a classic example of that. The day after, Hammer Greenwood, who's the Irish Secretary, Chief Secretary, he comes into the House of Commons. He, in a, in a speech, uh, starts by, in gruesome detail, talking about all the individuals, all these British men who were killed by the IRA that Sunday morning. He says nothing about Crow Park. It's only when Joe Devlin, who's the Irish parliamentary representative, stands up, the most, our leader, I should say, at this stage of the Irish parliamentary party. It's only when he starts heckling him, saying, what about Crow Park? What happened at Crow Park? That Greenwood is forced to talk about it. And Greenwood basically says that, and he's categorical, that the British officers were trying to search. They were fired on first. And they tried to defend themselves. He says, and we searched 3,000 people and we found 30 firearms on the field. So again, we were justified in what we did. Now, very quickly, almost as soon as he has said all that, that fanciful story is completely being discredited by the press because you have reporters from Irish newspapers and British newspapers on the ground who were able to go into Crow Park. The 14 bodies were actually left overnight. So the next morning, Newspaper journalists, people like Henry Martin, who's a very influential journalist with the Manchester Guardian, is actually looking and walking through these bodies. And very quickly, they know 
what happens. And you actually have the, the commander of the auxiliary forces in Crow Park that day in that operation who comes out categorically and writes that we were not fired upon. It was a couple of excited RIC constables who got out of hand and started the shooting. Mm-hmm. So this is a complete uh, own goal, if you want to use a sporting term, a complete own goal for the British uh, military, for the British authority in Ireland. And again, it just, again, it, 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 it you know, it, it completely undermines, again, their credibility at this stage in Ireland uh, with Irish people and so on. And that's basically the story of Bloody Sunday. And of course, because of that, because of what happened that day, because of these 14 people dying, and of course that included one of the Tipperary players, uh, Michael Hogan. And if people know Crow Park, the Hogan stand, the stand where the pre- cup presentation is made in All-Ireland Day every year, that's named after him. And so what the GA is able to do after that is basically show, look, we have bled for Ireland by what has happened here. We were the victim of the greatest atrocity of this entire war against the British. Um, and, and, and this allows ourselves to put forward as you know, we were front and central in this 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 independence movement against against uh, British rule uh, in Ireland and so on, and and they're able to you know on the back of the martyrdom of those fourteen individuals, you know, put themselves front and center into the story. I think that's a perfect summing up there, Richard. Um, and then finally, just before we finish off, then, so what was the health? Um, Go, just entering into the 1920s then, but what was the health of the or- organization as a whole, um, club-wise, um, the county game as well? Mm-hmm. Were, they, mm-hmm. were, they, were they still in a growth period then, or did they maybe dip for a few years and come back again? Or Yeah, what, what yeah. Like? so, I mean, these were difficult years, Colm, as you, you, you probably know for the GA, um, you know, um, because of the War of Independence and then, of course, the Civil War happening almost straight afterwards. I mean, you had five or six years of incessant warfare in Ireland, and the GA could not function. You know, it basically had to suspend its operations for this entire period. But I mean, it's testament, I suppose, to its development and, and how it had evolved in the decades beforehand that despite all this, the minute peace returned, the minute the free state and independence was declared, the GA very, very quickly gets back on its feet. And even though you have a load of All-Irelands and club championships that have been backlogged, they're all played off very quickly. And really, really in the 1920s, the GA really begins a huge spurt of growth and expansion. You have county teams uh, from provinces like Connacht and Ulster becoming much more competitive. You have new competitions like the National League, the GA secondary competition being introduced. Club um, numbers, affiliated club numbers begin to grow and grow and grow exponentially through the 1920s and 1930s. And the GA really begins, I suppose, to establish, establish itself as one of the supporting pillars of the free state. I mean, if you, if you think that for most of the 20th century, the three pillars were Fianna Fáil, the Catholic Church and the GA, and maybe the Catholic Church and Fianna Fáil have crumbled somewhat and the GA is the only one still standing firm and erect. Um, but it really did put itself front and center as a vital political or a vital sporting and cultural organization in this new island. And of course, that was helped by the fact that the GA very consciously um, did not become involved in the civil war, did not try and take sides. It presented itself as this neutral platform. You know, you might be a devil era man, you might be a Michael Collins man, but this is a place for people with their sporting passions to, to come together. 
and you know very cleverly and uh, you know and it was a very difficult thing to manage a tight rope to walk but they managed to successfully show themselves to have been above one side or the other and that helped the GA grow and and become that force in our society and it's from that time you know the GA has gone from strength to strength to what it is today you know the strongest sporting organization the most watched the most participated uh, sporting organization in Ireland and and something that as someone once said to me uh, something that you could not imagine Ireland without the GA and I certainly couldn't imagine being from Kerry without the GA you know <laughs> and I think that's the, the, the testament to mm-hmm. to it as an organization um, that it would I think it's almost impossible to imagine what Ireland would be like today if the GA did not exist that's true um, if, if you go to any country throughout the world say the us canada australia no doubt you'll walk you'll walk past say 100 people and you'll see at least four or five um gaa tops you know yeah, well, well, when i went, well, I went lot- to Sydney for the first time i mean geez, the amount of the amount i had my Kerry jersey on this is a few years ago and i remember walking <laughs> with a group of germans and a group of english people and i got about three or four hoots the horn and up the kingdom <laughs> and they had no idea they thought i was famous was like no no this is this is this is because I'm from Kerry and they're obviously from Kerry. Yeah. yeah, it was. I mean, the main street in Sydney and Melbourne on a Saturday afternoon does look like Crow Park. Going into it does, Crow it Park. does. But, but again, and and that's it. And the GA is so important to Ireland, but it's such an important conduit and connection for all those Irish people for our diaspora who are away. You know, and and G, watching GA matches, participating in the GA in those countries, that's that's keeping that link alive. You know, mm-hmm. and that's why it's so important as well. Of course. Um, my last question, Richard, and probably the most important, um, is who's going to win the next All-Ireland? Oh, well, 20KY, Sam, you know, <laughs> definitely. The six in a row will not happen, uh, or else I'm emigrating. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can go to Melbourne again. Yeah, I could, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic, Richard. Um, I really appreciate the last um, two episodes. It's, it's been it's been brilliant. And um, thanks very much for coming on. And hopefully, whenever the next book comes out, I'll be able to get you back on again. Oh, great. Yeah, no problem, Colin. And best of luck with the podcast and continued success, okay? <laughs> thanks very much, Richard. All the best. Bye. Pieces of History is written and produced by me, Colin McGrath, with additional material by Andrew McGrath. If you would like to hear more episodes, you can subscribe on iTunes and Spotify, And you can also get involved in the show by leaving comments and show suggestions on Twitter and Instagram at Pieces of History. Thanks for listening.